so the power goes out, as Marcus has said, and um, I was going to make a joke about the importance of tithing, uh, and I knew that would happen right there. I knew. I said it'll go over not, not so well, so just a joke. Never, no, no, no problem. Uh, act like I never said that. Here's, here's what we're doing this morning. Uh, before we jump in, um, I've got a special guest here that I want to take a moment just to greet you. I asked him if he'd take five minutes and just say hi to you. Uh, before he does that, let me set him up to do that. Uh, in, in, uh, starting 10 years ago, um, uh, an important issue for me that I wanted to establish in the life of our church, especially early on, was the identity of Israel, not only um, spiritually, but nationally. Uh, I wanted it to be known that our church stood with Israel, uh, that we not only believed in what God said in the Old Testament, that uh, I will bless you and I will make you a blessing to all nations and my covenant with you is for eternity. But I believe that it plays out through the New Testament. Paul teaches how we're grafted into the branch and that we enjoy the fatness as Israel prospers. Uh, I believe that the church is also in a position to prosper. And so we have taught that, we have shown that. But about 10 years ago, I felt like the Lord said to me, even more important than teaching it is to take people there, those who want to go. So about 10 years ago, we started making uh, a trip from JFC to Israel once a year. We've actually done 10 trips now. And uh, the average number is somewhere between 30 and 40 people that go with us. Uh, sometimes it's a little less. Sometimes we've had, I've had as many as 90 go uh, on a trip, but if you just average it, somewhere between 30 and 40, so in 10 years, do the math, we've had three or 400 people go with us, and my hope would be that before I'm done as pastor, I would take as many people who's, as want to go. I would love to take our whole church at some point, because I believe that when you go spiritually, there are two things that happen to you. One, just as a believer, it opens your eyes in, in living color to the Bible, to the reality of the stories, the miracles, the the um, just, just the the being there, the touching it, the seeing it. I, I I could I could talk to you over and over, but it won't do what what seeing it one time would do for you. And then spiritually speaking, there's just something that happens to a person when you're there. It's remarkable, and I don't know how else to say that except to tell you, come on the trip with us. You'd love it. So a year from now, uh, September of 2016, we're going to do our next trip. And uh, here's, here's why this guy's here this weekend. When I first started going on the trip, I was introduced to our guide. The guide makes the trip. A guide can make or break a trip. That, that person can either show everything off and allow God to, to be able to show people things, or they can be so overbearing and, and they can actually uh, cover and, and make it about them. Well, we've got a guide that has more knowledge and information about the land than any person I've ever met, but he knows how to allow God to do what he wants to do in the lives of people. His name is Ruben Zusman. He's here this morning with his wife, Galit. She sits on the front row. Ruben's about to come up. Here's, here's what I wanted. Um, they are actually in the States right now. They flew over from uh, Israel. Uh, their, their, uh, uh, their children were here for sort of a family reunion. They had a couple of weeks together and enjoyed themselves. But uh, our friendship has turned into one that Chris and I have gone to Israel to be with him. They come to the States to hang out with us. They're involved in our children's lives. We're involved. We, we were part of their marriage a few years ago, and it's just uh, it's a joy to have a good friend of mine here. So I said, Rube, we're going to kick off the, the 2016 trip, and how about you take a couple of minutes and greet the people and just uh, say hi from Israel. So do me a favor and put your hands together and welcome my friend, Ruben Zuzman. Okay just under the assumption that they're not going to pull the plug on me. <laughs> I wanted to say good morning, uh, shalom, peace from Jerusalem. It's great to be here. Thank you for your warm welcoming. And before I move on to the topic about which I was asked to speak this morning, I just wanted to stay with something local with your permission. And in a moment, you'll 
get where I'm going with this. We all know Tom Cruise, right? Right, there's a series of movies that he starred in, which was called what? And what was his name there? Ethan Hunt, that's correct. You know, I kind of identify with the agent, not with Tom Cruise, with the agent, um, because I feel that I've been given close to a Mission Impossible, and that is to talk about Israel in five minutes. <laughs> but hey, just like Ethan was uh, up to the challenge, so am I. And uh, last night I was sort of thinking, what it is that I'm going to talk about, how I'm going to best utilize the limited length of time that I was given in order to share with you a few things about Israel. And here's what I come up with. And tell me if this works for you. Um, I'll tell you a few facts about Israel. I'll mention some of the biblical related things and some of the modern things that have to do with the young state of Israel, born only 67 years ago. And uh, sort of tell you a little bit about what it is that we'll do while you're here, if you opt, and I hope you do, to come on that 2016 trip to Israel. So is that okay? Does that work? Okay, great. So we'll start with this. Israel is a small country in the Middle East, something like 8,500 square miles in size. And if it ever happens in the unlikely event that the, it's almost as unlikely as the power going out again, and that is that you get asked in a trivia setup, what or how many times does Israel fit into the United States? I'll give you the answer, 468 times. Being so small sort of things, what on earth is it about this place that attracts so many people to come there, to be there, to spend time, and to try and understand it? So yes, its size is pretty insignificant, relatively speaking, but here's two facts that will sort of counter that, perhaps. And we'll start with the first one, which is, Except for the United States, Israel has the largest representation of foreign press out of the United States, and that is for a nation that has just under 9 million people living in it. So I think that on its own says something just right there. The other thing is that per capita, Israel is not in the second place, it's in the first place when it comes to successful exits of startup uh, ventures. So. Those two things are perhaps connected more to the modern life. Israel has a reality where we are required to serve in the military, and that's another thing you will have a chance to hear about while you're there. But I guess it's also, um, first and foremost, the land of the Bible. And coming to Israel, and this moves me to talk about what it is that you would do if you came to Israel, would um, expose you to hearing the language in which I greeted you. I said shalom, which means peace. Uh, this hour of the morning, it's still appropriate to say boker tov, which means morning good. Not good morning, morning good. Uh, this Hebrew, after all, we do read and write from right to left. So the land of Israel had a resurrection of a language that was spoken in biblical times, the Hebrew language. And that is not to be taken for granted. Up until the late 19th century, People in Israel in the day-to-day -day life would speak a language that was born in Europe called Yiddish. It was thought that with the return of the Jewish people to their land, it would be appropriate to go back to using the ancient language, the language of Hebrew, which was used by the Lord Jesus. A lot of his teachings, a lot of his prayers, a lot of the miracles that he orchestrated were done in Hebrew. And coming to Israel will allow you to hear a lot of Hebrew and to be taught some Hebrew to hear names of places that are connected to things that have a very important role in your life 
as believers, being explained to you what it means in Hebrew, as that is the um, ultimate purpose of you coming to understand, to get a whole different way of looking at your faith, at what it is that you believe in. Another thing that we like to do is explain our difficulty when it comes to identifying sites. We have a lot of visits carried out throughout the uh, time in Israel. And typically when we approach a site, you'll hear me uh, saying to you that tradition maintains that. The whole issue of tradition is based on our lack of ability to determine beyond any doubt. And yes, I know that I'm out of town, but I had this like itch to just exceed one minute. With your permission, and I'll, I'll be done by the minute. Um, so that is another thing we'll do. Um, I guess the concluding sentence would be to quote my dear friend John, who always says to people that when you come to Israel, you'll get a whole different experience of reading the Bible, and we will be running where the Lord walked, in the land of the Lord, Israel. So I encourage you all to join the trip next year. I'll be available in the foyer after the services for anybody that wants to just visit or ask questions. And once again, I want to thank you very much for your hospitality and your time. Thank you so much. Thanks, man. You did good, dude. You did good. You don't need this one. No, no. Uh, so um, he, he's right. You know, he, when he talks about the Hebrew, part of going there is just to experience different things. We go to the place where uh, tradition teaches, and it's, it is close by there, uh, Sermon on the Mount. It overlooks the Sea of Galilee. It's a beautiful place. Sermon on the Mount is blessed are those who. You remember it? Sort of real quickly. So one of the things that Reuben and I trade off in, he reads it in Hebrew. And it, it's a powerful thing. Then we just do a little teaching on what Jesus was doing. Then we give people time just to go and to kind of contemplate what was going on here when Christ did this. Uh, we'll do the kickoff in January. So if you're interested in going, uh, that's when we'll have our meeting for it. We'll talk about what the price is. I'll give you the itinerary how you pay for it. We allow it to be done in uh, segments so that it's not one big bite out of a budget. And if you're interested in it, just be listening. And in January, we'll kick that off and we'll give you the dates and everything that goes with it. So enough of that. Let's jump to the message on the way in to all of the sanctuaries. You're given the notes. And if you want to grab the notes out, you can look at those as we're teaching. While you do that, our welcome just simply, I want to talk about one church in different places. I want to welcome all of our communities in right now, all of the different cities that we meet in. Uh, we call it one church, meaning in different places, with the idea that it really is one church. They're not independent churches. They're not independent ministries. They really are one ministry dependent on each other. We just felt like the best way to leverage our church, rather than building one big building and keep doing that over and over again, was to keep the church a certain size, each one, so that they could break down and reach more people. It could be like a small church with big resources. So I just wanted to welcome one church in different places meeting this morning. Uh, we're talking about a series called Unorthodox. We're talking about how to survive, prosper, and do well when culture around us is going the opposite way, when we see things in government not going the way that we want them to go or the way that we think would be the right way. So we're looking at three characters from the Old Testament who all had to deal with governments, uh, with kings, and with co-workers who didn't believe the way that they believed, who didn't respect their values, who certainly didn't uh, live up to what they thought was, was right or what was wrong. And those people are Daniel, Esther, and today we're going to talk about Joseph. So uh, here's how we'll end this series. 
Next week, we'll talk about Jesus and how Jesus handled his culture in his time, how he navigated it, not only navigated it, how he loved his culture and yet didn't allow the culture to change him. He could change his culture. So we're going to kind of look at these things as we go through it. So we're talking about Joseph today. Let me give you a quick overview of Joseph's life. Reuben talked about uh, the, the mission impossible again. How do you take 93 years of a man's life and put it into to a couple of minutes? Joseph is 17, like Daniel, when we first encounter his story. Uh, he was um, the son of one of the patriarchs. Our patriarchs are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, Jacob had uh, sons. His youngest son at the time, uh, Joseph and Benjamin. He loved Joseph with all of his heart. Uh, he spoiled Joseph. The older sons he sent out to work in the field. They didn't come back to the house very much. They had to sleep out in tents. They watched over all of the livestock. Uh, Joseph was treated different. Joseph had a bedroom. Joseph was spoiled. Joseph's job was to go out and to report what his big brothers were doing. Any of you ever have a younger sibling like that, right? Tell me how you feel about the younger sibling. who tell, He's a tattletale is what he is. He's a tattletale. And I'm not making that up. This is exactly what he did. He would go back and report on his brothers. His brothers didn't like him because of that reason. But more than anything else, the father uh, really did this, and it's a mistake in parenting. He favored one over the rest, and he made sure that the other ones knew it. In fact, he did it so much that uh, the other ones, while, while they're out doing their father's work, uh, Joseph is in the house. His father, Jacob, buys for him a really colorful coat, really brightly colored. So now I want you to get a picture. Can you imagine his father sends him out. Go out and tell me what your brothers are doing, but this time from a distance they can spot him coming. Here comes the tattletale and look at his nice coat. And they hate him. Literally, the Bible says they despise him, so they hatched a plan to take care of him. They're going to murder him. And here's what they did. They stripped him of his coat. They tied him up. They beat him up. They threw him into a pit. It was actually sort of a well, a cistern, and they thought he'd sink in the mud and die, but he didn't sink. They took his coat and they ripped it up and they dipped it in goat's blood and then they took it to their father Jacob and they said, hey, what do you think happened? This is what we found. And his father came up with the conclusion, wild beasts must have torn him apart. So you imagine his father's broken heart and his brothers think, well, we've taken care of the troublemaker. They come back and they decided rather than kill him, let's make some money off of him. So they sold him to some slave traders who were going to Egypt. And Joseph, at 17 years old, ends up from being the favorite son in his father's house to a stranger in a foreign land with a foreign government with foreign concepts of who God is and how to serve God. It's at that point we pick his story up. You would think that that's enough to happen to one person in a few years, but his story gets worse from there. He gets into slavery. Uh, he's bought by the captain of Pharaoh's guard named Potiphar. God, the Bible says this over and over about Joseph's life. No matter what happened to him, God was with him. God would prosper him. So he ends up in Potiphar's house and he, he does so well that Potiphar just lets him run everything. The Bible says the only thing Potiphar had to worry about was what he ate and what he drank. How would you like to have that as your worst worry for a day? Joseph did so well with that, but Potiphar had a wife who was after Joseph. Man, she was hot for him. And the Bible says that every day she would come to him, she would tempt him. She would say, sleep with me, sleep with me, sleep with me. And he would avoid her. He would do everything he could to get away with her. Finally, one day, she corners him in a room. And he's wearing a coat that Potiphar had given him. What a similar story. And the Bible says she got him in a corner and she said to him, My husband's gone, lie with me. And he said, How can I sin against your husband and how can I sin against God? And she grabbed a hold of his coat and he took off and left his coat behind. Here's what it means. She got his coat but not his character. And there's a world of difference between those two things. But she's a woman scorned and she tells her husband, Look, 
He came in and he tried to rape me. Here's his coat to prove it. Now he's put into prison. And in prison, again, God is with him. And he ends up running the prison. I mean, if you have to go there, you may as well run it. You agree with that. So he does good there. And he has the ability to foretell dreams. He can take what God is saying in structure of a dream and tell a person what it means. Pharaoh, in his anger, had put his butler and his baker in prison, and Joseph is in there with them. The butler and the baker have a dream one night, and they present it to Joseph. And Joseph tells them, here's what it means. To the butler, in three days, you'll go back into Pharaoh's service, and everything's going to be good for you. To the baker, he says, in three days, they're going to chop your head off. How'd you like to have that as the, yeah, I mean, it's a bad three days. Sure enough, it happens. The baker is put to death, and the butler is restored to his position. And this is all that Joseph asks. He tells the butler, when you get back into your position, remember me. Don't forget me. And the butler ends up in his position, and guess what? He forgets all about Joseph, and he's stuck in that prison. It wasn't that much later, we don't know exactly how long, but Pharaoh ends up having a dream. And if you know the story, it's seven fat cows, seven skinny cows, seven fat ears of uh, corn, seven skinny ears of corn. What is it? What does it mean? It means he ate pizza the night before. No, I don't know what it means exactly, other than Joseph interprets it this way. Uh, There's going to be seven years of a lot of harvest. That's the fat cows, the fat grain, the fat corn. And there's going to be seven really horrible famine years. And he says, here's what you do. During the next seven years, save up everything that you can. Put it in granaries, build them, and pile it in because the world is going to come here for grain during those seven bad years. And that's what he does. And Egypt becomes the most prosperous land on the face of the earth during that time. And Joseph is promoted to the highest place. The only person over Joseph was the Pharaoh. What a story. What a powerful story. You tell all of that, and you kind of put it together in just a few minutes, and it doesn't tell the ups and downs of his life. And as I was reading his story in the past couple of weeks, two thoughts came to me, and I think this is really important. All of the characters we've looked at, Daniel, Esther, and Joseph, the things that happened in their life, each one of them had the same similar statement that they made. They all said, God has done this. They didn't see what happened in their life as the devil is taking control, as all hell is broken loose, as I don't know what's happened to my world. Every one of them said, regardless of what it looks like, God holds me in his hand, and this is not the enemy of my life doing this to me. And as a believer, I want to say this to you. That has to be the foundation you build your life on. If you don't believe that regardless of what happened, God is in control of your life, you need to be afraid. You really need to be. Now, I'm not saying that you need to attribute everything that happens in your life that God did that to you. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is regardless of what happens to you, God is bigger than what happens. Do you agree with that statement? That God is for you, not against you. And here's what, here's what Joseph said that I think is most remarkable. What was intended for evil in my life, God has turned around and used for good to prosper me and to help people around me. So can I say this to you? Even if it hurts right now, if it ends up in the end that you win, are you okay with that? I hope you are, because the reality of the situation is the Bible never promises us that we don't go through things. It promises us that when we end up in situations, ultimately God is for us, that he won't leave us, he won't forsake us. And here's the truth. He'll get us to where we need to be. So having that mindset that God is in charge, that God is over everything, that God has a plan in our life. Now, let me, let me just point this out, though. I learned this really cool thing about perspective in the last couple of weeks. Chris and I have a son at Butler. He plays football. We went out to see his first game a couple of weeks ago. I talked about this, but let me, let me tell you what happened. We, we fly into Indianapolis, which is where Butler is, and the game is played in Terre Haute, Indiana. It's 100 miles from Indianapolis. 
So why are you telling us this? Had this neat thing. We rent a car. We have to drive there. Now, let me ask the question. Any of you ever driven back east? You ever done it? Okay, so when I say they have trees, we don't have trees. You're like, well, I've got two trees in my yard. That's the problem. You have two trees. They have such thick growth of trees. I mean, it, it, you can't see. If you're on a highway, it's I-70, by the way. The same I-70 that runs through Colorado runs all the way back to Indianapolis and through Indiana. So, so from Indianapolis to Terre Haute, we, we rent a car, and we drive on I-70. And I, I mean, here, you can drive and see stuff. You can see for a long ways. I mean, get out in eastern Colorado, you see stuff you don't want to see. You just you can see, see, see. But there... I mean, man, all you can see is the trees. And I had this really weird perspective. Around me was nothing but trees. Ahead of me, I could see a line that the highway went, but all you could see in the future was trees. And when you look back, you could see a line from where you came from, but all you could see were trees. And I thought to myself, right now, I don't know where, I'm waiting for a sign to find out where I am in this, because this journey feels like it's taking forever. The next day, we get on an airplane to come back to Denver. And Chris graciously lets me sit by the window, which I appreciated because now I don't have to talk to the other person on the other side. <laughs> Actually, I love looking out the window of an airplane. The plane takes off, and it follows I-70. I can see Indianapolis. I can actually see where Terre Haute is, and I can see the whole strip of I-70 between the two. Here's the most amazing thing. I could see all the journey in one view. Whereas when I was on the ground, all I could see was what was around me right then and there. It's the difference between an earthly perspective and a heavenly perspective. Yes or no? And so many of us live our lives stuck in the moment of where we are in space and time. We can't see what's coming. We can't remember how far we've come. All we can see is what's going on around us. Yes or no? And that's a really bad place to pull off the road. It's a really bad place to stop. A perspective like God has where he can see your life. Here's the beginning. Here's the path. And no matter what it takes, I'm going to get you where you need to be. Even if we have to go through some things, I will get you where you need to be so that in the end, you win. What a difference in perspective, huh? What a total difference. With that in mind, with that in mind, let me talk about God's plan in our lives. Now, it goes a little off the idea of dealing with with culture, other than I would say at times we can find ourselves, culture is only one of the issues that we have to deal with. Sometimes we deal, man, with people that betray us. It can come in the form of a marriage. It can come in the form of a business. It can come in the form of a friendship. And sometimes we deal with health things that just in the middle of it, man, you have no perspective. You're dealing with only what you can see right then and there. Sometimes it's financial. Sometimes it's spiritual. I mean, there's just places in life where all you can see is just what's around you. You can't remember how far you've come or how far you have to go. And getting God's perspective becomes huge. So when it comes to God's plan, let me, let me just real quickly, I want to read this scripture to you. This is, this is what Joseph said. Go, go forward, guys. It's not this one. Yeah. At the end of his life, he's able to look back over it, and I'll talk about that in a second, but this is what he says. As for you, you meant evil against me. But then he adds this sentence. But God meant it for what? In order to bring it about today to save many people alive. You meant it evil, 
but God meant it for good. Let me talk about how you go from evil to good in your lives real quick. Would you agree with this statement? God's process requires your cooperation. God's process in your life requires your cooperation. Do you agree with that? So, all right, people mistake God's sovereignty a lot of times. We tend to think God knows everything. God's every place at one time. God's all-powerful. He can do what he wants, when he wants, how he wants. He doesn't need us. So let me phrase the sentence in the right way. God has used his sovereignty to make a decision, and here's the decision. He limits what he does in our life based on how we cooperate with him. For instance, if you want to harvest in your life, you can't just sit there and not do anything. There are certain things God requires of you to do. If you, you sow what you reap, do you agree? If you want kindness, you must sow. I'm glad you didn't say anger because so many people confuse those two things. To get a harvest, you have to cooperate with God. If God's plan in your life is to bring you into a land that is good and not evil, but if you're in evil right now and you have to have faith, then that's a requirement to get you to the land of good. If you have to uh, hang on, if you have to be willing not to quit, if you have to just like agree that God is for me and not it, whatever it is, at some level, you have to understand God's process requires your cooperation. I put it as a bullet point in your notes. Viewing your present circumstances by faith, not by sight, is necessary for you to get where you need to go. If all you do is look around you and the only thing you feel is what you see, you're making a major mistake. Heaven's perspective is so much greater than what you feel right now and what you can see right now. And if all you can do is just go, well, I can't see anything else, so I don't believe anything else, what a mistake that is. It's a terrible mistake. Don't live your life by just the moment or the second or the minute, and I know sometimes we're stuck in it. I know as I say this message, I'm hitting people that if, that if your neighbor knew what you were going through right now, don't think I'm making light of that or being trite with it. I know. But it doesn't change the fact that you've got to have faith and that you've got to hold on, that you've got to get through. Because to get where God wants you, man, requires your cooperation. How about this? Another bullet point. God's process requires your cooperation. You've got to trust God in the process. You can't give up and quit. Now, look, I did this as a, 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 an illustration. This happened to me in junior high school. So forgive something that, you know, is as old as dirt at this point. But it... it <laughs> It's actually a pretty decent little illustration. So when I, when I was in junior high, 7th and 8th grade, this is back in the 70s, teachers could be rough with you, man. They could smack you. They could, they could, I, I had a principal who would still paddle you when I was a senior in high school. I went to visit him once or twice. <laughs> but I had, a, I had a PE teacher when I was in the 7th grade who's, he, he would, here was his statement, I'm going to make men out of you. We're 13. I'm going to make men out of you. So, Leech, get up here. You need to become a man today. I, I don't want to be a man. <laughs> now, imagine how big I was in junior high school, too, right? And it was always me against some Goliath kid. So here's what the guy, he had all these tests. One of them was volleyball. He loved to see you get killed in volleyball. He was that kind of guy, that stereotype. But he had this test. So he, he would put two guys together. You had to grab your leg like this. You bounced on one leg. The other guy had to do the same thing. And you butted up against each other. And the first one who fell wasn't a man. And the other guy was. So I'm like, I am 
going to win this contest. So I get with this kid. We must have butted up against each other 30 times, 40 times. And here's what I told myself. If this kid hits me one more time, I'm done. I'm going down. And right then he fell. And afterwards, I just said, man, what happened? He said, I told myself, if you hit me one more time, <laughs> I was going down. The only difference between winning and losing is being willing to go one more time. Now, it's a silly illustration, and it happened to me a lot of years ago, but it teaches me something today, that for many of us in life, that's exactly how it works. Your willingness to go one more minute, one more hour, one more day, one more week, one more month, one more year. Sometimes life is lived moment by moment. Do you agree? It's your willingness not to quit and not to give up that cooperates with God's plan in your life. And I wish I could tell you, go home and sit in your easy chair and everything God wants for you is going to happen, but life doesn't work that way. It's not God helps those who help themselves. I don't believe that. But God cooperates with us when by faith we stand in there regardless of what it looks like. And we don't give up and quit. Now, I think about my life. When I was three, our father abandoned our family. I mean, he didn't just like there was a nasty divorce. He picked up and was gone overnight. Took everything that my brother, me, and my mother had. All the money, one car. Left us in high debt. In two to three weeks, my mom said the bill collector was there to move us out of the house. This is in the early 60s. She's a housewife. What do you do? A few years later, she met a guy named John Leach, who she married, who adopted me, and I loved him, and I remember him as my father, and when I was 11, he was killed in a car accident by a drunk driver. They were bitter things, things that as I grew into a teenage, man, I, I felt rejection on one side, and I felt loss on another, things that I didn't know how to handle, things in my life that I'm, it, hey, you want to know the truth? It sucked. All I could see was just the pain of the moment and the lack that I felt in so many ways. But now I'm 51. I've been married 32 years. I raised five children who love me, and I'm a great dad. <laughs> I am. Now I have, listen to this, seven grandchildren. And all of them can't wait to be around me. What the devil meant to kill me with, and what could have been an excuse to keep it going as a generational thing in my family, God is used for good to make me a better dad, a better grandfather. I'm going to be a killer great-grandfather. <laughs> and I'm a better pastor today because I am much more, when it comes to dealing with people who struggle, I get it. I get it. I can stand up here and look you in the eye, and I am not, I'm not messing with you, and I'm not just preaching right now. Everything that I say, I've lived this. At the time... All it was was just hang on. When I first got married, I didn't know how to do anything. Thank God for a woman who knew something. <laughs> Thank God for a God who can use evil for our good. Going from evil to good simply requires your cooperation and your belief that God is good. How about this? Let me ask you a better question. How do you go from good to great? In my mind, good is, okay, I survived it. But how do you go from, do you think that God's called you to do more than survive? 
So I do too. So how, how do you get it to go from good to great? So let, let me show you this really cool scripture that, uh, that Joseph, so, so this, is, uh, this is at the end of his life. And check this out. So Joseph dwelt in Egypt, he and his father's household. So all of his brothers and all of his family end up coming and living in Egypt. Joseph is there to welcome them and to get a place for them. I mean, it's all part of God's plans. And look at this. And Joseph lived 110 years. So he came to Egypt when he was 17. He died when he was 110. What's the distance in between there? Do math real quick for me. 93. 93. He lived in Egypt for 90. He never went back to Israel. He lived his entire life in a foreign land and yet he prospered incredibly, and it made a difference to all of his family. So follow this right here. Joseph saw Ephraim. This is his son. Ephraim's children to the, how many generations? So that's your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren, and your great-great-grandchildren, all right? To the third generation, the children of, uh, I think it's uh, Mashir, uh, the son of Manasseh, this is his other son, so he's talking about his grandson, the son of Manasseh, were also brought up on Joseph's knees. So here's what the Bible is saying. Even though he ended up in terrible circumstances, in a land that was not of his father, a place that was uncomfortable with the people who didn't respect God, God so prospered him in that place that he was a grandfather to his great, great, grand. He lived to see them grow up. The curse stopped with him, didn't it? And his family was blessed. You go from good to great in your generation when you're willing to realize, look, the curse can stop with you. Don't give up. Don't quit. Don't stop. Because if you'll make it through, you'll be a blessing to your family coming after you. And right now, it may really suck for you. But what will it be like for your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren if you get through it? Is that worth everything? Hmm. How about this? Believers need a vision beyond an election. Sometimes all we're doing is holding off for a few years. You need a vision beyond an election. You need a vision beyond the rapture. You need a vision beyond next year. You need to have a 40 or a 50 year vision of life. And believers don't live with that today. All we think about is what's going to happen in the next election. We're going to live or die by the election. Can I say this? Regardless of whether you're happy or not at the next election, you'll be alive. <laughs> and God is in control. You had your chance. I'm coming over here now. Regardless of who gets elected, God is in control. Do you believe that? God is in control. It may not be what we want. Certainly there's a difference between morality and not. But ultimately, it doesn't matter what happens. Believers have to have a much bigger vision than some election or next year or the rapture. Here, here's the truth, though. So let me, let me just be honest with you. I, I, I want to spell this out for you. The truth of the matter is that uh, in his life, um, he, he, he can't say that, um, that what was intended for evil, God used for good until he comes to the end of his life. So, so go, to that, uh, go to that last scripture for me, if you would. So Ecclesiastes 7, 8. The wisest man who ever lived was Solomon. And Solomon wrote these words, the end of a matter is better than its what? Than its beginning. You know, sometimes it's only at the end of a process that you can look back and say, hey, it turned out better than it started. 
when you're at the beginning or in the middle, sometimes you just you have to say it by faith. C.S. Lewis, you know the name? Here's what C.S. Lewis said. When you can't see God's hand moving, trust his heart. Believe that God loves you and that he cares for you and that he's for you and that he's with you. When you can't physically detect that God is doing something great, trust that God loves you and hasn't forgotten about you in life. So that you can say when it's all said and done, the end of the matter turned out much better than the beginning of the matter. So look, I come to the end of it. I know when I taught this, there were two people I wanted to speak to. So I know that some of you, man, you're right in the middle of stuff. I, I mentioned a few things, but the truth of the matter, I couldn't. Just the amount of people in the room, I couldn't come close to trying to guess all of the different things that people face in their lives. But God knows. And the message is taught this morning because God wants to meet you right where you are in life. I believe I spoke this so that God himself would be able to, to reach you where you are. For the other person, maybe you're at the point where you've got a little perspective on what you've been through. And you can see what was intended to kill me. God was able to take it and use it for good. What, what does God want you to do with that? Do what I do. Use it as an opportunity to praise God and beat the devil up for losing. Hear me on that issue. Worship God because he's been good to you. Worship him because he's been faithful. Worship him because he's taken you through. So let's give the Holy Spirit a moment just to just to help minister. So Father, we want to open up our hearts and allow the Holy Spirit to, to be able to speak to us. God, I guess, um, I, I guess the one that probably is so pressing on my heart would be people who find themselves right in the middle of journeying in life and it's just a difficult time. Maybe things didn't go the way you wanted them to go. Maybe it's a setback. Maybe it's a spiritual problem, an emotional problem. Maybe it's physical. Maybe it's sickness. Maybe financial. Maybe it's marriage. Maybe it's just disappointment. Huh. Maybe you're at that midlife crisis point and you just feel like, is this all there is and life's not worth living? Maybe you're even asking the question, God, where are you? Have you left me? Am I believing for nothing? It just doesn't make any sense. Could you, could you believe that God's trying to answer you today through this message? Could, could, you, could you open your heart enough to believe that God is trying to, to answer your prayer? by speaking directly to you about being at a place in life where sometimes you can just lose perspective and you need to remember God sees it all. He doesn't just see your beginning and he doesn't just see where you are. He sees the end and he knows how to get you where you need to be. And while I can't offer you some false hope that, hey, God instantly will change right where you're at. That's not always how it works. Sometimes the only way to the other side is through it. God is with you, and God is for you. Open.
Open yourself up to that. The other side of that is those of you who are able, like me, to look back and see some pretty evil things. God was somehow able to use those things, things that you thought would kill you, would be destruction. Could have been. (laughs) Could have been a repeating pattern in your life and in your children's lives, your children's children's lives. But because you trusted the Lord and because he's good, God turned it from evil to good. Give him praise for that. Worship him for that. Don't look at yourself and go, look what I did. Look at your father and go, look what you did. Thank you for loving me and thank you for helping me. God, in all things, we turn to you. Whether right now it feels pushed down or whether right now we feel lifted up in all things, we turn towards you and we thank you, God. We thank you for loving us. Thank you for caring about us. Thank you for speaking to us today. Lord, we just pray that you'd help us now, each one. Pray it in Christ's name. Amen and amen. Thank you.